0: I think I took a week or two or three or four off, I can't remember now. It's summer, so like, you know, it's a hiatus time. Hey, it's um, The Real John Baker, and you're listening to Too Lazy to Write, and I am, uh, for the first time ever, in the the room that I record this in, I have a guest company. I have two people. Well, I have one person, my wife, she's not paying attention to me, and I have my dog, who uh, appears to be doing other things, like sleeping. So... Um, by now everybody's read my Facebook post. (laughs) No, it's, whoa, what's the, what's the tea, as my daughter would say. Um, so this week, wowie wow, I have a guest, um, is a good one. I'm, I'm really proud of this one. Uh, she was, uh, gracious enough to answer my email, which appears to be the only way I get guests, which I, I love. People answer my emails and they come on the, the, the program, the podcast, uh, so who, there's a bit of a tease in the, in the Facebook post that said, if you like Prince, Oh, the bike fell. Okay. Um, this is embarrassing because her prime, well, not her primary, but one of her jobs, was a audio technician and my audio has fallen all over the place. So who do I have? Woman by the name of Susan Rogers. And I'm going to read her bio right off of the website because, uh, Going from memory wouldn't do it justice. So what do we got here? Susan Rogers holds a doctorate in psychology from Montreal's McGill University, where she studied music, cognition, and psychoacoustics under researchers Daniel Levitan and Stephen McAdams. Her research focuses focuses on auditory memory, the perception of musical signals, and the influence of musical training on auditory development. For two decades prior to her science career, Rogers was one of the world's few women known for her work as a record producer, engineer, mixer, and audio electronics technician. Career highlights include years 1983 to 88. Get this, guys. As staff engineer for recording artist Prince, and working with such diverse artists as Bare Naked Ladies, David Byrne, Tricky, and Tevin Campbell. Right now, Rogers is the director of the Berkeley, that's Berkeley with two E's at the end, Music Perception and Cognition Laboratory. In tandem with business partner and former student Matthew MacArthur, 10. Maybe that's his class of 2010, I guess. Rogers launched Boston's first nonprofit recording studio, The Record Company, to offer low cost recording facilities to area musicians and free music technology instruction to area teens. Career highlights recordings include Purple Rain, you heard of Purple Rain, right? Around the World in a Day, Parade, and Sign, Oh, the Times by Prince, and Stunt by Bare Naked Ladies. Produced singles for artists such as Robin Ford, Jeff Black, and Rusted Root. On my way, Send me on my way, on my way. Mixed hit singles for Toad the Wet Sprocket and Tevin Campbell Engineered singles for a host of other artists Research interests include auditory memory, music perception and cognition and psychoacoustics If you took anything away from all that is She's a brilliant woman with a fantastic career And we talked a lot about a lot of things And wow, I hope you enjoy it How are you today?
1: I'm fine, thanks. Uh yes. had a nice fourth of July here in Boston yesterday. Yeah, how was
0: that? Did you uh, uh did you get out?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I went uh I went to um well, every Every Fourth of July morning, uh, down at the State House, they read the Declaration of Independence, and they read it in. The, they have a fife and drum corps, and they wear the powdered wigs and, the, oh uh, yeah, the 18th century um, costumes and all that. And then they read the Declaration of Independence, the full thing, not just the preamble. And uh, it's it's very very patriotic, and it's a great time to be in Boston, Fourth of July. Well, right. actually.
0: My, my daughter, who goes to summer camp in Canada, is, was actually in Boston yesterday, but they were bowling.
1: Oh, uh, <laughs> well, that's pretty patriotic, too.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, there's nothing more American, I guess, than, uh, than bowling on the 4th of July. So, so yeah, that's good. Um, I'm sorry, I, 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 what happened? Here's how I heard about you. A friend of mine back in Ottawa went to a talk that you gave at, um, I believe it was the Dominion Chalmers Church. It was a couple yeah. of years ago.
1: Yeah. It and was actually it was actually uh it was this February.
0: Oh, it was that recent?
1: It was uh, it was this year, yeah. It was it was megaphono in Ottawa.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. And um he was obviously, you know, taken in by, by your story and and your journey and he was telling me about it and I thought, Well, this is somebody I really want to talk to. Oh
1: thanks.
0: Um, so I just wanna go where
1: where are you from? Originally, I'm from Southern California. I'm from Anaheim.
0: Oh, okay. And then you you ended up at McGill.
1: Uh huh. Yeah, I uh, my my career path took me from Southern California to well, from Anaheim, Orange County, next door over to Los Angeles to Hollywood, precisely. Um, 1978 is when I started my career. So I was an audio technician in Los Angeles and then in 1983 I got my dream job uh, which was to go to work for Prince because he was my favorite artist so I moved from Southern California to Minnesota I was with Prince for four years after Prince I was back in Los Angeles working as an independent record maker and then I had a hit record with Bare Naked Ladies from Toronto so with that hit record I was able to uh, leave the music business and pursue a second career that in academia So I went to the University of Minnesota because I love Minnesota so much, did four years as an undergrad, and then I was fortunate to be accepted into McGill uh, in the program in behavioral neuroscience, and I was in Daniel Levitin's lab, so uh, that was wonderful.
0: So it really has been, like you said, quite quite a journey.
1: Yeah, I've been, uh, because I'm single and childless, my life is just my own, I don't have to worry about, you know, I don't have to worry about dragging someone else down, down the wrong path with me. Any, any successes or failures I have just just impact me alone, which is, that this, this, this sounds like it might be a little bit sad, but it's actually, it's quite, it's quite nice, it, it suits me, okay. uh, that makes me happy.
0: Do you have a large family?
1: yeah I've got, I've got a lot of brothers and they're all out in California and um, close to them, so okay. Yeah. Uh,
0: uh, speaking as a Canadian who spent a lot of weekends and uh, time in Montreal, do you have a favorite spot there that you miss?
1: You know, I loved it down by the water. It was just oh. so beautiful, you know, in the old town there. Yeah. I really loved that the most, I think. Uh, every April and May, they would have these garden shows or these landscape art exhibits down there by the water. And, oh, man, I loved that so much. I lived in uh, near Marche Water, and, and oh. I, I liked that neighborhood as well. I, I was okay. really happy. I was really happy to be at McGill. McGill was great.
0: Yeah, and you were there for how many years?
1: Four years, doing a doctoral Okay. Four
0: years, Wow. So and and um yours is not, I wanna say, a typical journey for a woman to take. Is that fair to say?
1: Oh yeah, that's very fair. That's more
0: than fair. <laughs> <laughs> so you said Prince was, was your favorite um when you were when you were younger and, and um and it was your dream job to work with him. So and I'm sure you've told this a thousand times. Can you tell it a thousand and one times? I uh-huh. love it. Yeah. Can um, I tell- so how did you end up uh, a woman uh, a woman from, from Anaheim uh, mm-hmm. in Minnesota engineering for Prince on and these you said you were there for four years these are four key years if yeah. if uh, you know music history is right.
1: Right, his most productive period. Um, Well, success happens when preparation meets opportunity. That's what I'm telling the students all the time. And I was the right person who had had, just through stroke of luck, the right kind of preparation. I was the person that he needed at that time. And he was certainly the person that I needed. So we complemented each other. So he hired me when he came off the 1999 tour. He was embarking on Purple Rain, the whole project, not just the album, but the movie. And, of course, there'd be obviously be a big tour that would accompany that. And it's a big project, you know. He was 24, 25 years old. And uh, prior to that era, his home studio was maintained by a local fellow who had some experience in uh, electronics. The, like specifically like guitar amps and things, but not real experience with uh, pro audio equipment. So Prince sent the word out in the Professional Grapevine to his management. He said, get me a technician and make it someone from New York or L.A., you know, someone who really knows the business and can repair consoles and tape machines. Okay. So as it happens, I was in Los Angeles. I heard through the Professional Grapevine that Prince was looking for a tech. And it was actually my ex-boyfriend, John Sacchetti from Westlake Audio, who called me. And with his uh, thick Boston accent, he said, Sue, your dream job is waiting for you, Sue. Call Glenn, call Glenn. It's your dream job. Prince is looking for a technician. So, uh, (laughs) at that time, I was working with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. They had a studio in Hollywood called Rudy Records, and that was their studio maintenance tech. And uh, it was great. Uh, That, uh, you know, for a young woman like myself, that was, uh, I was pretty pretty lucky, uh, you know. But I I knew my stuff. I'd been well-trained, and... um, and then, but then, when that call came through that that job was waiting, I just went, "Well, Prince's search is over, because that is yeah. my job. I am getting that job." Uh-huh. So they they hired me, and it, it was it was a good fit for a number of reasons. One, uh, I was a good technician. Uh, Prince n- liked working with women, and I was one, so that worked out pretty well. Okay. Uh, he 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 he. Um, as it turned out, he and I, in his words, lived on the same street musically. We knew the same references. So he could talk about anything on R&B and soul radio, and no, no artist was obscure enough that I wouldn't know because I had listened to the same music. So he and I lived on the same musical street. Another thing we had at, going for us is that I was a huge Prince fan. I had all of his records. And as we were making records together, I can react to them as a fan because I've, I've I've been into him and seen him play live several times. So I had that. And another thing I had going for me is that I could hang. You know, I could stay up those long, beastly long sessions.
0: Okay.
1: Twenty, twenty-four hours was not at all uncommon. That was that was normal. And forty-eight hours was not abnormal. That would happen. You know, we'd have. Those long sessions, so I was just the right person, you know, at the right time for him.
0: That's unbelievable, and um, and now I I, I want to jump ahead. Um, I'm I'm probably going to go all over the place, and I hope you're okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so last summer, uh, my daughter and I went to go see this um, celebration of Prince music that Questlove has curated.
1: Mm.
0: Now, and if you don't feel comfortable answering this question, I completely understand. But what do you think about what's been done with his music since his passing?
1: Oh, first let me say that people can ask me any question they like. Uh, I'm an educator, so I'm used to students asking questions, and if I don't know the answer, I'll say I don't know, Uh, and if I do know, I'll tell you the truth, and if it's something that, you know, would cross a a line, and I don't think I've ever been asked a question that would cross a line, Uh, I'll say that too. So yeah, you can ask anything you like, anything you're curious about. So uh, about six months or so after Prince passed away, I started getting phone calls from uh, folks involved with the estate. And in particular, one fellow, his name is Michael Howe, Uh, he was at Warner Brothers Music Group at the time, but now he works exclusively for an archival company. And his job is to archive the Prince estate and oversee these releases. So he contacted me. He contacted other engineers, too, who were working on some of the seminal Prince material. The other smart thing that Michael Howe did was he contacted one of the world's foremost collectors collectors of bootleg material okay. and there someone over in, in the Netherlands and he contacted this person. The reason that was a smart move is because with all the legal issues that were swirling around after Prince's passing, folks didn't have access to the vault. We didn't know what was in there, necessarily, they hadn't kept good records. Um, there were tapes scattered everywhere because the vault was overly filled with tapes and there's hard drives. So we didn't know what was in there. But uh, the folks who do ha- have a record of what's in there were those collectors, those 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 collectors. Now I'm I'm hesitating a little bit because there's a difference between a bootlegger and a collector. A bootlegger is someone who obtains these tapes and sells them on the black market. This person who was involved, and I'm going to keep his name private because I don't know if I should share it, but this person who was involved uh, in the Netherlands was not a bootlegger. He didn't profit from unreleased prints material. He was one of the many rabid collectors who would who buy this material as it was available. So anyway, Michael Howe contacted him to find out what's in the vault. And I had a Skype conversation with this fellow, this wonderful fellow over there in the Netherlands, and he said a statement to me that was a little bit chilling. So I think this was in our first conversation, and I'm I'm saying, you know, well, I really don't know, you know, what's in the vault. People are asking me what percentage of Prince's music hasn't been heard and i'm estimating at this point like 60 or 70 percent and this fellow said to me we have everything we have everything what (laughs) else and that was like holy crap i came to find out they pretty much do but what they have are these copies that are so many generations down it copied usually most cases off of a cassette there's such poor audio quality that they couldn't really understand the lyrics and things so to answer your question um uh, the 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 collectors were able to provide us with lists of material and they were able to um remind me of titles we had done years and years ago and me and other engineers around that time they were able to remind us of what was in the vault. That said Michael Howe then was able to get legal clearance to be able to go in and find this stuff. I think the job as far as I'm concerned um, is as good as it can possibly be done. After Prince passed we were talking about what what would it take what is the scope of this job like taking a major artist who is so prolific mm-hmm. looking at everything he's done and deciding what to release now well the problems are let's see um Let's say financial, like who's going to profit once we start selling these records, who gets the money from it? The problems are technical. What if um, some of these tapes won't play because they're too old? Or what if something was recorded on an early version of Pro Tools and you can't open the file? The problems are managerial. Who's going to oversee this? Who's going to do this work? And who's going to pay for them? The problems are organizational. How are we going to organize tapes alphabetically, chronologically? I mean, how are we going to manage this? And then there's the philosophical issue of what should be released. Should we please old Prince fans? Should we try to please new Prince fans? Should we release those little gems that the, uh, that the collectors enjoy, his best material, his worst material? What should we do? Yeah. It's a huge problem. I don't see how they could have done it any better. The very, I mean, I give Michael Howe all the credit and all the praise I can. He's a wonderful man. I think he's done a great job.
0: Was was Prince a particularly organized person with his with his music? No, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: he, he left that to others. Um, okay, he, he would just. Uh, that's the reason that I started organizing his tapes and why we ultimately came up with the vault system when I joined him in '83. You know, it might be midnight or so, and he'd say, get me this tape. And I, as a new employee, I didn't know where that tape was. Uh So I needed to know where everything was. And I needed to know where to put things, because we were making stuff so fast. So I started collecting and organizing them. We had a very primitive computer uh, then in 83, 84, and eventually his office staff started keeping track of all these titles, and I started keeping physical track of the assets, Then when we planned Paisley Park Studios, we just continued on that vein and and we built an an actual tape vault. So Prince just expected that if he asked you for it, you'd find it. He wasn't organizing it himself.
0: So you had a very uh, key role then in, in building Paisley Park Studio?
1: I had a role, yeah, I had a role. Um, Prince had been imagining it for a very long time, and uh, I was part of his team, I was his full-time engineer, so uh, I was consulted on the blueprints. I did not get the one thing I really, really wanted, which was an echo chamber. Still regret that, those guys were wrong, they were wrong, we should have <laughs> an echo chamber. We had all the space in the world, we're in Chanhassen, Minnesota, it's not like we're in Boston, you know, we yeah. had space, why didn't we have a chamber? Uh, I didn't get what I wanted, but everything else, um, the, the the studios were designed to facilitate how he and I were working at that time, and it wasn't just the two of us. <coughs> Pardon my voice. Excuse me a second. <coughs> <Okay>. Pardon me. <coughs> I live alone, so I don't use my voice that much. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, when we were out in Los Angeles working at Sunset Sound, it would be myself and Prince and Peggy McCreary, who was a staff engineer at Sunset. So anyway, we, uh, the, the, the control rooms were designed to be really large because when Prince worked, he liked having all of his instruments around him in the, in the control room because he, he would just move from one instrument to the next.
0: Was there anything he couldn't play?
1: He didn't play horn. He didn't play. Uh, he didn't play the fretless strings like cello or violin, but okay. of the popular instruments. You know, he he was an expert on drums and bass and guitar and keys and just an incredible vocalist. Incredible vocalist.
0: Is there anything? Uh, so sorry. So you were involved with Purple Rain, uh, Sign of the Times.
1: Yeah, the album's in between, so Purple Rain, Around the World in a Day, um, Parade, uh, Under the Cherry Moon, that was the the movie, and the album was Parade, and uh, Sign of the Times, and then the Black Album was an album that came out after Sign of the Times, or it it almost came out, it was about to be released, and then Prince yanked it off the loading dock, uh, changed his mind, but of all the tracks on there i did all but one of them of this new originals album that's out now uh, i believe i'm responsible for about half of them uh, i think i counted nine or ten on that cd that i did so we did a lot of work in that period so yeah is, a lot.
0: is there anything that you you hear now um that you it's hard to say because the techn- some of the technology obviously didn't exist, but is there anything you hear now that you would change, not just on on Prince's stuff, but on anything that you were involved with?
1: Oh sure, you know that's that's the nature of artistic work is that um, when you hear something, especially if it's something you like, it inspires you. so anything you hear that inspires you, you want to go in there and. And, and have some fun with it. Uh, there were many, 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 many ways that our work could have been improved, uh, more m- on my end than on his end. Um, he worked really fast. And Prince has been called, erroneously, he's been called a perfectionist. He was not a perfectionist. Perfectionists don't typically don't make great art. Um, When it it comes to making records or paintings, writing a book, I suppose, there's a risk at getting too precious about it. There's a risk at being too earnest about it. You have to be able to treat it like you would uh, a baby, I suppose. I mean, new parents, I understand, are just almost afraid to touch the baby, like, oh, it might break. Yeah. No, you, <laughs> you gotta you <laughs> give him a bath, and you gotta clean out his ears, and you, 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 gotta, you gotta play with the baby. And that's the same thing with art. So, yeah, there's loads of imperfections, but whether or not those should be changed, I don't know. That's a philosophical point.
0: Well, it's funny, like, I, and I mean, no... <laughs> There is no way I would compare anything I ever did to what you did, but I used to write commercials uh, for radio, (laughs) and I always treated them, and again, it's so weak a comparison, (laughs) Um, but I always, like, I'm I'm comparing a car dealership ad to, you know, Purple Rain, but.
1: (laughs) No, but I know what you're talking about. Go ahead.
0: I never took... If there was criticism back from the client or from the pers- you know, from a sales rep or whatever, I never took it personally. I always figured I wanted to just sell the product.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, music has a form and it has a function, and those two must be balanced. We can't get too precious about the form because if we do, if it's form for form's sake, then the object becomes. Well, I don't want to say dysfunctional, but then the object can't function. Let's look at high fashion, for example. You see the women walking down the catwalk. No one wears those clothes. <laughs> no one dresses like that in haute couture. They, 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 what they are, um, what the designers are showing us, is what you can do with form. But clothes actually need to function. People need to wear them on their backs. So the function is going to cause for a very call for a very different form, whether it's furniture or it's fashion or it's food or music. Um, there's some pretty high-tech food out there, too. And yeah, and it, yeah that's, that's great. You know, the art of it is in seeing how far we can push the form. But at the end of the day, um, music and car ads and things like that serve a utilitarian function. So, we need to be cognizant of that and uh, not get so hoity-toity about, not get so precious about our ideas sometimes, unless we're doing art for art's sake, and then knock yourself out.
0: Interesting. So, it's such a unique perspective that you're able to offer because you were so close to the, to the process.
1: Mm, yeah, I watched him work, but I watched an extraordinary genius work, and uh, after leaving Prince and coming back to Los Angeles, I'm going to quote um, Dylan Dresdow, or maybe it was Chris James, but there were a couple of engineers, You know, I think it was Dylan, yeah, Dylan Dresdow was an engineer who worked with Prince after the year 2000, and we were on a panel together, and he said, after Prince, you had to unlearn him, you had to unlearn Prince. So, Certainly, that was the case for me, because Prince was my first real recording experience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which sounds so funny to say. I started at the top, but after Prince, I had to learn how the average musician records. And not even the above average. It was only the above average. The really, really good and sometimes great musicians who would get a record deal back in the 80s and 90s. So, the folks I I was working with, they were no joke. They were still no prince He was truly extraordinary
0: But you worked again uh, Then with also uh, David Byrne Who in his own right is a Mm -hmm. bit of a genius
1: Oh yeah David That was a really great experience David uh, the first thing you learn About him when you meet him Is how funny he is Uh, He's very smart And he's got a great sense of humor And what I loved about him Was how he would quickly and easily see what's, what was funny in a situation. I loved that about him. I I just I, I liked him immediately and really enjoyed working with him. Uh, he's he's um, very organized. In his business, and this is why he's been able to be both a successful artist and a successful entrepreneur and a successful writer. But he truly is a man who is right there at the, I think the word is the fulcrum, that that little point, like a middle point of a teeter-totter. Yeah. The The beautiful way this man has balanced his artistic side, which is powerful and strong, with his business acumen, which is also strong that's really rare. A uh, lot of times, artists will have a label. I think the Beatles had, was it Apple Records? And, yeah. Uh, Led Zeppelin had Swan Song Records, and Prince had Paisley Park Records, and typically nothing ever happens with those labels, and people don't, you know, the, the, the artists don't have the mindset that would allow them to really run a label properly, um, but David is the exception to that. His Luwakabop Records is a, Wonderful, wonderful label.
0: So will you be in attendance at his Broadway shows in October?
1: I already have my ticket for uh, <laughs> the previews. Uh, they're, they're previewing it here in Boston. I have a t- ticket for opening night. I can hardly wait.
0: Oh, that, when's that happening?
1: Uh, opening night is September 11th, so I will be with a couple of friends. We'll be there in, in the crowd to see that show. But That's he's going to be on Broadway in New York in October.
0: Yeah, we're just in uh, Virginia, so uh, New York's four hours, and I, th- I think I'll have to go for that. I've mm-hmm. never seen him perform live, so um, it would be a real thrill, actually.
1: <laughs> well, from what I understand, the kind of scuttlebutt through the art world is that this thing is great, so really excited to see it. And always happy to support him. He's, he's just wonderful.
0: Well it's funny there's a, a a tiny little connection. I have an aunt who's an artist and she actually remembers him from the Rhode Island School of Design where she went for uh for a while.
1: Oh, oh I hope she has good things to say about him. Uh I I, I- love that uh, he started as a as a visual artist. It's in he's he's really quite a consummate artist.
0: You were you were mentioning um uh, recording art you, you briefly mentioned recording artists now and has there been an improvement or or sort of a degradation now that everybody like I'm doing this on GarageBand and I have virtually no experience with, mm-hmm. with audio do you see this kind of new generation of recording as as a good thing where we're headed
1: well that uh, good and bad uh, that's a value judgment and um, it's I don't suppose it's, it's wise to make value judgments about something as large as the human music response. So uh, people want to make music. Human beings want to express themselves musically. Other people, those who don't express themselves musically, and I'm one of them, want to consume music. So we, we've we definitely got supply and demand going on here. There's people who want to supply it, and there's people who demand to have it. Okay, the intervening okay. object is the technology, and that's always going to change, from the wax cylinders to analog tape to digital audio workstations. The new technology is going to change a, a methodology, how we make these objects, and uh, that's going to get... Well, it's going to get easier because um, otherwise you wouldn't invent a technology that made it harder. Right. It's progressively getting easier, there will be certain artifacts and ways of working that will disappear along with the technology that's being replaced. So, for example, um, in my era, in the 80s and 90s, when I worked analog, it was 24-track. And when I, all the records I did with Prince were 24-track, which meant that your arrangement, your pieces, every piece of music and voice, lead vocal and backing vocals, every, every part had to fit on 24 tracks. So that meant... If you had a big, complex arrangement, you kind of had to think about that in advance. If you're going to have an orchestra, well, you're going to have to record that orchestra in such a way that you can blend it down to a stereo pair of tracks. Typically, if that orchestra is going to accompany a pop song, because you're going to need room for all, for everything. So you had to think about your arrangement in advance, which meant you had to do some pre-production. Kind of have, have, have an, an idea of what parts, what arrangement will go Will this record consist of? Anyway, now that we've got unlimited tracks, you don't have to do that. You can hit the record button and just record drums without even an idea of what you're going to do beyond that. Uh, we we lost in analog. I, uh, there was a certain sound to it that was very nonlinear. That's why digital audio was invented because of analog's distortions. But Physically speaking, in analog tape, the signal sinks into the storage medium. The signal is superimposed onto a layer of these tiny, tiny, tiny magnetic particles. Think of the finest sand you can imagine. and the, the, The particles are arranged such that you've got your signal in there. So when symbols decay into silence, when the exhale of a singer's voice disappears, it disappears into a bed of soft chaos. Just the same way that light saturates a piece of film. So, you go to the movies, and you're looking at a piece of film. It looks, compared to video anyway, it looks warmer. The tones aren't as vivid as they are on digital video, but they're more realistic. And when light disappears into shadow, it looks somewhat natural the way light disappears into shadow just you know to our eyes to our eyes so um analog had a thing about it that was warm and kind of inviting whereas digital audio is similar to digital video in that it's either a one or it's a zero it's either there or it doesn't exist so in this case in digital audio when the symbols decay when the voices decay when it's gone, it's a black hole of nothingness. It's an abyss. It doesn't exist. The end result is that it sounds like digital audio projects at you rather than sinking into something. It's kind of coming toward you. And to us old-timer engineers, it sounds a little bit harsh, you know? Huh. It's a little bit yeah, just kind of bright and hard in a way.
0: So would it be fair to say that... Analog is your preferred way to listen to music?
1: Um, it's certainly fair to say it's my preferred way of recording it. Um, oh, okay. Since, because it's all I know. Uh, excuse me one second. <clears throat> Sorry about my voice. That's okay. Um, I I've never made a record on digital. So um I've watched them be made, and I've done a couple of little sessions, but I've never done a whole record on digital. I'm used to working in the analog era. It's what I know and it's what I like. As far as listening to music, I'm not making too much of a judgment call there. As I was saying earlier, if you're balancing form and function, there's another um, another way that you can think about the consumer and a music product. Um, Engineers are making, simultaneously, a sonic object and a musical object. The listeners are buying a musical one. Mm -hmm. The listeners aren't going into a record store from back in my day to find sonic objects. They're going to find music. So, when I listen to music, I'm listening to music. It's a bonus if it happens to sound great. But it's not going to bother me too much if it if it doesn't sound great. Because that's not what I'm listening for. I want to have a musical experience.
0: So you're more comfortable with razor blades and grease pencils than a mouse and a keyboard.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> uh, my friend Tommy Jordan from the band Gagita, they were on David Byrne's label. Tommy says that making a record digitally is like kneading dough with one finger. And it's somebody else's finger. <laughs> <laughs> it is... Yeah, for, for us for those of us engineers who were used to the analog way to sit there with that damn mouse and be staring at a screen, it just seems ah, uh, it just it just seems so cold and and unmusical. Here's here's let me speak now as a brain scientist. Uh, human beings have way more neurons. And circuitry devoted to processing what we see than processing what we hear so we are visual creatures that's where we're looking for information if you're sitting there with a screen in front of you you're going to be captivated by it and you're going to be processing what you see over what you hear uh, I loved how in the analog era uh, I might as well close my eyes, because looking at anything in the room isn't going to give me information I can use. Looking at the remote of the tape machine, well, it'll tell you how far into the song you are, but mm-hmm. if you know anything about the arrangement, you already know how far you are into the song. So you can close your eyes. There's, there's there's, nothing you need in the visual modality that's going to give you any information about this song. And that allows the auditory modality to... Um, to take over and and it, it gives your brain more resources for processing what you hear you're really held captive by what you see on that screen and it you are draining some of your auditory processing power when you're focusing on that screen in front of you
0: interesting i have yet i have not been in a classroom in a long time and i feel like i would uh, really enjoy your class.
1: Oh, thanks. Well, that, thank you. I, uh, I, I got to pay it forward or pay it <laughs> backward and, um, and thank the good teachers I had at McGill uh, and, and the University of Minnesota, too. I learned some great things and transitioning from being a record maker to being a student it was really, really exciting. I was really, really glad to be an older student. Uh-huh. That's the way to do it, is to go to college when you're older. It's so much better.
0: Yeah, I tried to take a class a few years ago, and I found it exhausting. I was like, mm-hmm. how do they stay up? Oh, my God, I'm old. But we <laughs> just had a baby, so it was also, I think, oh, a bit yes, of that, yeah. too. Yeah. Um. So are people, I mean, you're such an engaging speaker. Um, are people just clamoring to get into your classes
1: um well (laughs) maybe i don't know i teach at berkeley and uh the kids there are great and i teach record production and i teach the analog tape class because the kids like it but i also teach psychoacoustics and i teach music cognition and yeah the classes do tend to fill up the kids do The kids do want those classes, but we've got um, we've got some great teachers at Berkeley. I mean, geez, Louise, we've got some folks who are far more experienced than I in other areas, and um, they're clamoring to get into a lot of classes. We've also got um, we've got Berkeley Online, and through Berkeley Online, we offer an undergrad degree. And uh, I wrote one on music cognition, so folks can take that undergrad degree in music cognition, but they can also take um in the master's program, they can take psychoacoustics and that that has been popular as well among it's it's psychoacoustics for record makers, but it is it is a science class. these guys have to work hard for it.
0: Is there um is there like to the to the people you're teaching? know about the history that you have, like, are they at all interested in any of the same musicians that you worked with, or are they sort of on their own with what's current now?
1: You know, I never, I, I typically don't bring it up unless they ask. I don't talk about my um, past experiences. Um, occasionally, I'll need to deliver an anecdote, or there'll be a point in a lesson where I will reference something I learned on the job, but uh I, I leave it to them if they're curious and they want to look up, look me up, then fine. And if they're incurious, then they don't have to. Uh, it kind of doesn't matter. I, I'm always afraid of being one of those teachers who rests on her laurels and who walks into a classroom thinking, "Okay, I've done great things, right. so therefore everything I'm going to say is." It's, it's going to be true. I don't, I don't ever ever want to be that person. I, I like being challenged by students. Um, <clears throat> I'm there to give them information so it, and that information isn't about me. It's about in the science classes, it's about the natural world. In the production classes, it's about how to think about record making. And um, So I, I, I keep the focus on the topic.
0: Fantastic. I'm so worried that my audio is going to start to screw up in a few minutes. So um, I want to ask you quickly, what are you listening to these
1: days? Oh, I have been really enjoying um, Bob Dylan's Theme Time Radio Hour. It's about 10, 15 years old now, but uh, that has reawakened my love of early blues records Mm-hmm. And uh, I have been I just recently got back from a trip to Memphis and visiting some of the legendary studios in Memphis, Tennessee, and it was literally a dream come true. So <clears throat> I am listening to the Records on the Stacks Volt label, Booker T and the MGs and the Marquees and Rufus and Carla Thomas and all that great stuff, Wilson Pickett and all that. And then I've also been listening to the records that Sam Phillips did on the Sun label. So I'm going back to the early blues like Jimmy Rogers and, um, and Tommy Johnson and Elmore James and early B.B. King, you know, those folks. Sure. Um, as Bob Dylan says, if it's new to you, then it's new music. It doesn't have to be brand new in the record stores, but if it's new to you, it's new music. So that's what I'm listening to.
0: If it's okay with you, I would really like to end there because it's such a, it's such a high that you've put us on, I think. Thanks. Thank you very much. Susan, this has been just an unbelievable treat, and I, I'm so grateful that you answered my, uh, my email. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, sure, no, it's always a pleasure to chat with folks, and uh, thanks, for, thanks for asking me. It's a pleasure.
0: Please, if you ever are in the Virginia area, the northern Virginia area, look yes. me up. I would take you out for dinner with my family, and cool. we'll have you over, and we'd, we'd just love to chat some more.
1: Well, that sounds wonderful. Good luck with this. I hope it goes well, and um, I guess maybe we'll talk again sometime.
0: I I would love that. Thank you so much, and have a great uh, rest of your summer.
1: All right, and you too. Take care. Bye.
0: Bye. Susan Rogers, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you again. Um, I don't know if anyone else remembers where they first uh, heard or saw Purple Rain. Uh, for me, it was uh, the summer it came out, which I guess was 1984. Uh, every year, Camp Gesher would go to the Maccabea Games at uh, Fitzroy Harbor. And uh, they put all the camps were allowed to put together these uh, mixtapes. And of course, the Gesher one was a mix of just craziness and songs nobody had ever heard of, um, including a uh, chorus singing. Fuck you over and over again. Just a sec. I got to take a sip of coffee before I continue this riveting tale. Ah, I bet in radio school, they tell you not to drink coffee on the air, but this ain't radio school. Um, so yeah. Uh, and anyway, there were all these tapes that other camps put out and it was, I was like, this one goes out to my best friend, Jessica from her best friend, Karen. And it was um, When Doves Cry over and over and over. Camp ends, go home, gotta see Purple Rain. Everybody's talking about it. Went and saw Purple Rain. It was fantastic. Uh, Saw it at the Elgin Theater on Elgin Street in Ottawa. No longer there. The street is, the theater isn't. And uh, rented it, bought it, owned it, have the album. I think everybody has the album. And anyway, Susan, thank you so much. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Uh, I'm going to wrap it up now because um, in D.C. today, uh, on this the 6th of July, uh, at the Nationals Ballpark, it is Expos Day. E-X-P-O-S. 50 years since Montreal got their franchise. And to quote my brother when he was in Montreal a few years ago, Never have I seen a city so proud of losing a baseball team as the city of Montreal. Everywhere he looked, people were wearing Expos gear. Luckily, I have a hat. Gonna wear that. Gonna have a steam, maybe some Montreal smoked meat, which I'm pretty sure they're just gonna pass off warm pastrami. But anyway, hope you enjoyed it. Susan, uh, the offer stands. If you're ever in the DC area, please, please get in touch with me. Um, want to either have you for dinner or take you out for dinner I uh, would love to just talk to you more just wonderful stuff thanks for listening i'm working on some other guests uh, hopefully that'll work out in the next day or two um take care hope everyone's having a great summer talk to you all later thanks for listening again uh too lazy to write i'm the real john baker you can find this on itunes google play on the website too lazy to the number two the word lazy the number two the word write.com and i hope uh, everyone enjoyed it take care talk to you soon bye Joe